from WAMU 88.5, this is Metropocalypse. I'm Marty McFly DeCaro. Coming up, a trip to the future. Roads, where we're going, we don't need roads. Paul Wiedefeld's vision, higher fares, service cuts, we pay more for less. What it says is, let's get real first. Plus, the Washington Post editorial board calls for a federal takeover of WMATA. Really? What kind of future would that be? That's irresponsible. That's not going to resolve the problem. As we blow past 88 miles an hour in our DeLorean of destiny, the red line, it's episode 22 of Metropocalypse. The D.C. Metro uh, historically has been a great strength of this region. There is no big room full of money that you just reach into and throw for a federal takeover. If you buy a new car, you don't say, oh, I have a brand new car and not take it in for a maintenance check at the recommended times. Well, that's what Metro has done. They have never taken the car in to get the oil changed. It's November 2017 a year after General Manager Paul Wiedefeld unveiled his reality check budget, and two people are standing on the platform at Shady Grove, waiting for their ride to work. Hey, where's the train? You know, it has been taking longer lately. Yeah, eight minutes between trains on the red line. Used to be three minutes. Yeah, that sucks. It's cold out here. Not only that, it's more expensive, too. Parking and the train, it's all more expensive. You mean we're standing here waiting longer and paying more for this service? No thanks. Yeah, time for bike share. Okay, back to the present. We get it, budgets are boring. Tear duct vaporizing. Metro's budget is 300 pages. Look it up online and tell us how long before your eyes start glazing over. But the budget we're going to talk about today offers a glimpse into Metro's future. It's a statement of General Manager Paul Wiedefeld's vision, his priorities. It's what he believes the second busiest transit system in the country is capable of offering us right now. Ridership's down, so he's proposing to run fewer trains, even during rush hour, and cut 14 bus lines. Metro needs more money, so he's seeking a fare increase. 25 cents for buses, 10 cents for rail, 10 cents for parking. May not sound like much, but an extra 50 cents round trip for the bus every day adds up. I spoke to Wiedefeld recently, and he offered this defense of what he's calling a reality check budget. I think it starts with us, starts with the, uh, the agency itself, that it has to be a reality check on what we do, making sure that we're basically maximizing every dollar that we get, and that we're also minimizing the, the request as much as we can. That's why I've put in additional cuts on, on some of the labor force, for instance. That's why we're going to focus on absenteeism. That's why we're going to focus on workers' comp cases and things of that sort. Um, so that's where it starts. So that's a reality check on that part. But it is a reality check for the entire region in terms of where we've been over the last, you know, eight plus years in terms of some of the ridership numbers, um, in terms of the financial realities of, of, you know, costs going up and having to deal with those. Um, And it's just, you know, I think it's across the board a reality check. You have said repeatedly that you are a transit person. You're a pro-transit person. You'd rather not raise fares, cut service. So then why didn't you propose a budget that places the entire onus on the contributing jurisdictions to cover the budget deficit? Because I think um, I think there's 
it always makes sense to look at the, the core business as well. Uh, so, for instance, if we have roots underperforming, we should be looking at those, and we should be debating those, whether we continue to fund those or not. Bus routes. Bus routes, in that case. And if and if rail ridership's going down, not only because of things that, obviously, that we have, where we have lacked maybe performance, but also just the reality of, you know, lower price and fuel and changing demographics and things like that, then we should be taking a look at the system. I don't think we just constantly just keep building on it without t- taking a hard business look at these things. And with us now to discuss all of these issues is Amy Custis, the Managing Director at the Coalition for Smarter Growth, a pro-transit, pro-metro group. Amy, welcome. Thanks for having me, Martin. All right. So do you agree with the reality check? Yes, but that's really hard to say, but it's very long overdue. Why? Our region is dependent on transit. I know that I, as a young person, though I'm not as young as I used to be, depend on transit. That's why I moved here in 2008. And I can tell you that so many of the people I talk to on a day-to-day basis say exactly the same thing. We moved here so that we could live in a place where we don't need a car, where we can get around easily. And to be looking at these kind of big metro cuts is really hard from a customer perspective. Do you, does your group support this budget proposal? Or are you neutral on it? We support the general manager in bringing it to the table. We think it's a very hard look at where we really are right now. There are hard choices to be made. For a long time, we haven't known how bad things could really be at Metro. And this is the general manager coming to the public with that communication we've been asking for and saying, sort of laying his cards on the table. Here's what it looks like. Here's what it's going to cost to get back on the right track. You mentioned you live in downtown D.C. You have a lot of options. You have bike share. You can walk, uh, Uber, etc. Where I think the general manager is running into some trouble is the budget proposal keeps the system intact for people who use it primarily during rush hour. It's on the fringes, on the margins, where he's looking to make cuts. And I know your group is sensitive to that, transportation equity, that if we cut the most inefficient bus lines, yes, we're talking about bus lines that don't have a lot of riders, but the folks who are actually on those lines do need them. Absolutely. Transportation equity is a huge issue in our region. It also comes up in the proposals to raise fares for buses. That hurts, arguably, from an equity perspective, poorer people than cutting rail service. It's something that in every major American city we are dealing with on a transportation funding level. Let's stay on the equity theme, late night rail service. Amy Custis, you of the Coalition for Smarter Growth, wrote an op-ed in Greater Greater Washington, where at the time you said Metro had not made the case yet to use those overnight hours for maintenance instead of running trains. Just recently, uh, the Metro Rail leadership put together this in-depth presentation as to what they'd be doing during those overnight hours. Are you sold now? For the most part, yes. Um, so you've come around. I have come around. We were fortunate enough to be able to take the time and sit down with Andrew Off. Andy Off is the head of rail for Metro. And Joe Leader, the chief operations officer. Yes. And they talked to us for over an hour and a half about, we had asked, you know, why is it not surges? Why are we talking about just closing early? The entire system as compared to just shutting down a part of it overnight. Exactly. And they came back to us with, and I'm not a real operations expert. I'm so some an, of this was <laughs> over my head. I'm not but, an engineer either, yeah. Uh, they made a very compelling case, and I wasn't the only one in the room who thought so. And they talked about five big 
preventative maintenance programs that they're basically not doing now and that they need this extra time to do. Let's hear from Andy Off. He is Metro's Assistant General Manager for Rail on what the new maintenance regime will be after SafeTrack. So under SafeTrack, uh, we are replacing primarily components that have already failed. Under our preventive maintenance program, the purpose is to inspect, measure, maintain those components prior to failure so that they do not result in delays for our customers. Again, making sure the system is available during rush hour, even if it has to come at the expense of the hours that are on the margins affecting people on the margins of the metro rail system, it's just tough medicine in the view of Metro that the region has to swallow, at least for the next two years. That's how long they say this program needs to take or produce results. There is something we've been doing for years and years, which is robbing from tomorrow to pay for today's service on a maintenance level, not on an actual dollars kind of level. Though that might be an apt metaphor there as well. Sure. But if you buy a new car, to put it in very simple terms, you don't say, oh, I have a brand new car and not take it in for a maintenance check and to get your oil changed at the recommended times. Well, that's what Metro has done. They have never taken the car in to get the oil changed. We've never done that preventative maintenance. And so in addition to the digging out of our maintenance hole, they're talking about instituting an actual take your car in to get it cleaned and checked every however many thousand miles. So the Coalition for Smarter Growth is on board now with this program, it sounds. But there are still others who aren't. And the general manager, Paul Wiedefeld, has admitted he has not done a good enough job communicating as to the merits of this program. How do we get the rest of the region to go along with this? Oh, my favorite question. (laughs) Uh, Well, D.C. Council member Jack Evans, he wants 3 a.m. trains. That would mean maybe the subway opening at noon on Sunday. I think a lot of that is the rest of the region not having heard what Metro at our behest has told us, yes, they've briefed some advocates, they've briefed a few members of the media. If you know where to dig online, you can find the rather dense PowerPoint. But one of the things at the coalition we've been really pushing Metro to do is to do more and better rider level communication. And I'm not talking about the signs that you see in the stations about Safe Track Surge 10, though those are necessary as well. I'm talking about People in our region, we are a region of wonks. We are Washington, D.C. Everybody and their brother works in policy. This region demands to know the why behind decisions. And to date, Metro has done a lot of, well, we have reasons. We promise this is the best decision. And I think that really we're starting to maybe see a change toward, and here let us tell you what those reasons are, but that's a huge culture change that's going to take some time. Excellent point. And even I, who covers Metro every single day, wasn't clear on the nuances, the differences between what they're doing now with Safe Track, which is replacing what's broken. 90% of weeknight track work, according to Andy Off, is done on things that have recently broken. They're trying to change from that repair mode to an ongoing maintenance mode, as he alluded to, with things like cable megaring. Never heard of that term before. Uh, you know, corrosion control. I mean, I'm, I'm going to... Track but- tamping or yeah, something. I'm going to butcher all these yeah, terms. I'm not an engineer. But this is the type of stuff, for lack of a better word, that needs extensive hours, not broken up in a half hour here, half hour there. Three, four hour blocks to be effective. Let's touch on one other subject. Amy Costas, Managing Director, Coalition for Smarter Growth. Do you think Metro will get its riders back? 
I know you hope that happens. <laughs> Do you think it will happen? I think it can happen, and I realize that's not saying it will, but I think it's possible. We as a region, looking at places like Chicago and New York in decades past, we think it's really bad right now. We don't realize just how much worse it could get. And so it's a matter of how bad is it going to have to get before we make the turnaround. Just today in the Washington Post, Jonathan O'Connell, big story about how developers still love Metro. I know that's music to your ears and transit-oriented development, but I think the issue is bridging, you know, between now and the better days ahead, if we expect better days where all these people, jobs will be moving into the district and the region, living close to Metro rail stations How do we get from here to there with all this disruption? I think that's the scary thing for all of us right now. It absolutely is scary. But I think a decade ago, maybe a little bit longer, luckily for me, this is why I'm here before I ever moved to the district, our regional leadership, our elected officials made a choice that we were going to have a transit-oriented development future. And I think that the success we've largely seen in the region in the past decade has been Because of that, I think we've put enough in place in terms of how we build and where we're building and the value that people are voting with their feet and that that's not going to change. This is what people want. And whether they do it at the ballot box or with their property taxes or with where they're choosing to live and work, that's going to remain the same. Amy Custis of the Coalition for Smarter Growth, thank you for joining us on the podcast. My pleasure, Martin. When Metropocalypse continues, we've had a lot of bizarre conversations about Metro lately, but this one may win the prize. The Washington Post editorial board is calling for a federal takeover of WMATA. And the Metro board chairman, Jack Evans, agrees. The board would have to have extraordinary powers, powers to negate contracts, to fire people, access to the U.S. Treasury for money. So that would then solve many of the problems Metro is having now with an inability to get money, an inability to renegotiate contracts, to fire people, to downsize, all of the problems that have been identified. What kind of future is that? We'll talk to Dan Tangerlini, one-time Metro GM, also ran a huge federal bureaucracy, the General Services Administration, next. Continue on Metropocalypse with an idea that has almost no chance of happening, but it did get us talking. Longtime D.C. residents remember what happened in 1995. Congress appointed a control board to oversee the district's finances. Well, now there's talk that Congress should do the same for Metro. Why? It would give the feds the power to negate union contracts, fire workers, and, although this one's open to debate, access a giant pool of federal money to make Metro solvent. Now, set aside the view that this won't happen, at least not anytime soon, merely suggesting it raises some real questions. Is Metro, with its current structures, a 16-member board and largely unionized workforce, really incapable of solving its own problems? Are the labor costs, and they are large, really such a big deal that we'd have to scrap the labor agreement that's been in place since day one of Metro? A quick aside here, you've seen what's happening in Philadelphia, right? A massive transit worker strike. Well, at Metro, this longtime agreement prevents it from happening here. 
Dan Tangerlini is a former interim general manager of Metro. He's also run the General Services Administration, and he served as the city administrator here in the district. So he knows a thing or two about running huge bureaucracies at the intersection of federal and local politics. And we asked him for his take on the idea of the feds taking over WMATA. I, I just don't see any precedent for that. In a, in a way, what they're suggesting is uh, something similar to uh, uh, Ronald Reagan and the and the air traffic control workers. But in that case, those people work for a federal agency. So I'm not exactly sure how that works. And so a suggestion that the federal government take over the regional transit authority with no idea what what the legal framework for that is and, and really what the end game is. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm actually a little surprised about it because the federal government's kind of equivalent takeover of the of Washington, D.C. was seemed as a, a real failure of democracy. And, 1995. Right. And, and, and I just can't imagine that Maryland and Virginia would agree to that um, uh, to that attack on their sovereignty as well. So I, I think what it suggests is that there are a lot of hard dis- decisions facing folks and, and they're looking for an easy path. And, and there really is no easy path here. D.C. Councilmember Jack Evans, the chair of the Metro Board, says a federal takeover, even though it might be impossible legally and politically, would accomplish what can't be accomplished at the collective bargaining table, which is major concessions from labor when it comes to compensation, wages, pension, health care, the labor expenses that critics say is pushing Metro over the brink. One reason why Metro is facing a $300 million budget deficit. Well, the, the way you would do that is you would actually go back and amend the compact and take the uh, uh, take the, the requirement for binding arbitration out of the contract. The only problem with that is, um, and it's a big one, binding arbitration is in there to prevent strikes of the sort we're seeing in, in, Philadelphia. in Philadelphia. And it, it comes out of the history of Metro. People need to go back and read... The, the story, the history, the under, you know, understand how we got the mass transit system we have, there was a giant uh, uh, strike in the streetcar network. It had a massive impact on the, on the transportation system within Washington metropolitan region. And there was a commitment going forward that they would never put themselves in a position where they could suffer the, the impact of a strike again. Some riders may not be aware that when labor enters negotiations with management, in this case the Amalgamated Transit Union and WMATA, that if they reach a stalemate, it goes to a binding arbitrator. In the past, arbitrators have ruled in the side on the side of the union when it comes to wages, benefits, etc. Do you take this position as well that some others are taking now, that the union is the issue here, the labor expenses are the problem? I actually think that the problem is much more complicated than that. I think the bigger problem is that the the region has gained tremendously from the value of Metro. It has pocketed the value of Metro, uh, internalized it in the form of um, property tax revenue to the various jurisdictions, and then protest paying for the value of Metro. Are there issues with um, with the labor contract? Absolutely. The ability to take overtime uh, into retirement, um, uh, you know, a number of other issues. But those are issues that need to be fought and worked out over over years of negotiation. I, I, I don't know if a federal takeover uh, resolves those issues. I don't know if eliminating binding arbitration resolves those issues. What you need to do is what I think Paul Wiedefeld is trying to do is really negotiate with the unions and take a long view. And you're saying that we would rue the day 
we get rid of binding arbitration. I, I you know, I'm not saying that. I, I just want people to think through the consequences. You know, it's it th for every for every action, there's an equal and op opposite reaction, and and there's a reason why we have the system we have. And I, I tell you, when I was uh, had the pleasure of serving in the interim capacity of general manager, I was frustrated by it too because the binding arbitration system picks from a list of arbitrators. Arbitrators make it to the list by not deviating wildly uh, from precedent. So there's there's some inherent issues with binding arbitration. That having been said, there's some obvious, clear problems with not having binding arbitration. Go talk to the people in Philadelphia and New York who have suffered from that. A transit strike here would you know, cripple the Washington region. We're seeing what's going on in Philadelphia right now. It is not a pretty scene. So we're talking about expenses, labor expenses. Let's flip it to the other side of the equation. Revenues. Fair revenues are down because ridership is dropping. You mentioned the jurisdictions. They, they make lip service. They speak lip service to wanting to support Metro. You feel they're not doing it strongly enough. Well, no, I, I think that they're actually doing what the jurisdictions need to do. They have multiple priorities that they need to prioritize against very limited resources. Uh, you're making choices of Metro versus police versus schools. Try to decide that. It's very, very hard. So I'm not saying anyone's paying lip service or, or taking shortcuts. What I'm saying is it's a very complicated issue, and if we had thought more, uh, if we had been more considerate about the way we structured Metro's funding, so it is actually tied to the revenue that Metro brings into the region, that we would be in a we would be in a better position. The idea of a federal takeover, at least in the eyes of D.C. Councilmember Jack Evans, is that Congress would have access to the federal treasury, and voila, you solve your funding problem. Because he believes the region's not going to come together for a regional sales tax. You're shaking your head. Well, I'm shaking my head because um, having worked at the federal treasury, there is no big room full of money that you could just reach into and 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 throw for at federal takeovers. Well, I was going to ask you for a loan, actually. So well, I'm, I'm uh, sorry but I don't work that. there anymore. Okay. So, and and I wouldn't have given you one if I was there. Uh, but <laughs> but um, the point is that the. Um, that there has to be an appropriation. There has to be first an authorization and then an appropriation. So there would have to be several moves on the part of Congress to authorize the resources, make the resources available and appropriate them. So I think that that's part of the problem is that there is the assumption that there's some federal magic money sitting on the side. There is none. So could it be that we're over, as a region, overthinking this and that the, the solutions are sitting right in front of our eyes. It's just going to take some political leadership and will to get it done. Regional sales tax, potential congressional appropriation for the operating budget, etc. I don't mean to keep contradicting you. I don't think we're overthinking this. I think that this has got to probably be part of the conversation, the dialogue. I think it's great to surface ideas and, and then take a look at them. I, I do really think, though, that the solution to Metro is much more complicated than a silver bullet. I think the region really would, would rather actually solve its own problems than try to turn to the federal government to solve them. I think the federal government would, would be very loath to get involved in what is really a regional funding issue because then it opens the door for Metro trying to solve, uh, for the federal government to try to solve every other transit authority's problems. And, and this isn't a particularly unique problem to DC Metro. It's okay. You can contradict me all you'd like. Matter of <laughs> fact, if you'd like to host the podcast no, next week, no, you can do that too. I'd but, rather not. I see this federal takeover talk as, as a distraction from some of the real issues that the new general manager, just a year on the job, needs to face. Do you? I, I don't want to characterize it as a, as a distraction. I, I do think, though, that it shouldn't, you know, people should take a good hard look at it and recognize that that's a door that, 
probably is is welded shut. You know, they should take a look at it. If that helps people move the ball forward and recognize that there isn't an, an easy escape hatch, that means we, you know, lob the metro problem over to the federal government and they solve it for us. Once they recognize that, then they're going to have to come back around the table and they're going to have to do what this region did uh, about 40 years ago, 50 years ago, when it when it actually committed the effort to build metro. And it's going to have to come together as a region. It's going to need to develop a long-term vision, and it's going to have to have an idea of where they want to go as a region, how they want to compete nationally and internationally. And that's going to involve building the structures and the systems and the investment to get there. We have demonstrated our capacity to do it because I rode here uh, just today on it. The metro system is evidence that this region can work together constructively with a long-term vision and build something. Dan Tangerlini, former GM of Metro, thanks for joining us. And thanks also to Amy Custis of the Coalition for Smarter Growth and the WAMU WMATA players, Ali Schweitzer and Jacob Fenston. Eh, where's that train? Metropocalypse is produced and edited by Brendan Sweeney and Joe Warminski. Andy McDaniel is our head of content. Alicia Montgomery is our editorial director. All the music from Metropocalypse comes from WAMU's Capital Soundtrack. This week you heard tracks by Boat Burning and Martin. That's Martin with a Y. You can check out the tracks and find other great local music from the Capital Soundtrack at wamu.org music. Until next time, I'm Martin DeCarroll.